Well, good morning, church. <laughs> I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, our text this morning is going to be Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Colossians 2, 1 through 5. And as you're turning there, I want to say just a quick thank you uh, to all of you for your prayers this last uh, couple of weeks uh, and for all the text messages and emails and notes of encouragement that we got while my family was quarantined and sick. Uh, thank you guys. Uh, it's a privilege to be a part of a church that loves us so well and that prays for us uh, so consistently. So thank you guys uh, for that. We are feeling much better and we're glad to be back with you this morning. I'm excited to preach to you this morning from Colossians chapter 2. So uh, if you found your way there, I'd like to invite you one more time uh, to stand with me as I read for us God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Uh, this is God's word to us this morning. From the Apostle Paul, Colossians chapter 2, start there in verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom all are hidden, or in whom all hidden are of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word now, together I pray that you would speak to us with your Holy Spirit. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in our hearts now, applying these words, convicting us of sin, showing us blind spots and errors that we might be falling into, guiding us in your truth. Lord, I pray that you would do your work in our hearts and in our church this morning through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time uh, that we were in the book of Colossians, we saw Paul begin this section back in chapter 1, verse 24, talking about the nature of his gospel ministry. Now, last time in, in chapter 1, verses 24 through 29, we saw Paul talking about the nature of his gospel ministry broadly, that is, uh, that's applicable to all churches at all times and all places, right? But this morning, in, in the passage that I just read for us, Paul begins to narrow his focus from talking about gospel ministry broadly to gospel ministry very particularly, uh, specifically about his gospel ministry among the Colossian church and the nearby Laodicean church. Now, both of these texts from verse uh, 24, chapter 1, verse 24, all the way down through chapter 2, verse 5 that I just read for us are all rooted back in chapter 1, verse 23. So scan your eyes back up to chapter 1, verse 23. You'll remember this is the conclusion of Paul's Christ hymn uh, that he uh, talks about all of the glories and uh, sufficiency and majesty of Jesus 
And he says that all these things are true of us in Christ, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So our text this morning fleshes out what Paul's gospel ministry was like, particularly to the Colossian and Laodicean church. And I think here that there's some very important lessons for us as Bloomfield Baptist Church to learn about what true gospel ministry looks like in our local church. So, my main idea, if I were to <clears throat> summarize Paul's main point in these five verses in one sentence, here's what I would, here's what I would say. This is, this is the point of the sermon, right? That Paul labors hard in ministry to preach the true gospel so that believers may be united in love, filled with the knowledge of Christ, and to guard believers against false teaching. Paul labors hard in ministry to preach the true gospel so that believers may be united in love and filled with the knowledge of Christ and to guard believers against false teaching. So if you have your notes there in the bulletin in front of you, you see that brings us to our first point, uh, the first of two points in this sermon. Number one, faithful gospel ministers labor for the church's unity and knowledge of Christ. Faithful gospel ministers labor for the church's unity and knowledge of Christ. Now, if you remember from our text last time, Paul describes not only his ministry, but really gospel ministry in general in terms of toil and struggle. He, he talks about ministry as, as hardship and suffering, that that's just the nature of what true gospel ministry looks like. And, and he starts our passage this morning much in the same way. So you notice there in, in chapter 2, verse 1, notice what he says. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. This is continuing right on with what he said in verse 29, just above this. For this I toil struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. So you notice again here that he describes ministry as a great struggle, as labor, as toil, as hard work. Now, the Greek word here that Paul uses in these verses is the word agon, agon. The verb form of this word that he uses in chapter 1, verse 29, is agonizomai, agonizomai. Now, does that word sound like something that you've heard before? Agonizomai. Well, it should. It's, it's the word from which we get our English word agonize. Paul here is saying that his ministry is an agonizing work. It's an agonizing work. Now, I want to be clear here that Paul's not saying that, his, uh, that the Colossian church, that the people in that church particularly are agonizing to get along with. Right? He's not, you know, give him a slight, like, punch in the face or something like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, Paul's never actually met these people face-to-face -face before, as he says in, in, the, in the passage itself, right? 
No, Paul doesn't describe his ministry among the Colossian and Laodicean churches in agonizmi, a, a, a laborious toil, a struggle, because these are particularly bad people to get along with. Uh, he does this because he understands that true gospel ministry is a spiritual battle. Paul is engaged here in spiritual warfare. He says something similar to the Ephesian church, a letter that he wrote the same time that he wrote this letter to the Colossian church. He says to the Ephesian church, For we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. From Ephesians 6, verse 2. Right, And so we saw last time that this spiritual warfare, this labor, this struggle that Paul is engaged in, it has physical realities attached to it as well. Right? So again, remember the context of this letter that, that Paul's writing this letter to the Colossians, not while he's sitting on a sandy beach somewhere with a drink in his hand. Right? He's sitting in a Roman jail cell. He, he's in a dungeon as he writes these words because of his ministry of preaching the gospel to the churches, right? And so he understands that this agony, that this affliction in his ministry, they are appointed by and they are identified with Jesus' own suffering. We saw that last time. Well, brothers and sisters, I think this is a good opportunity for us to remember, to be reminded that when we are engaged in true gospel ministry, we are engaging in a spiritual battle. We are engaging in spiritual warfare. And we must not forget, church, that this good task that we as a church are called to requires what Charles Bridges calls toilsome labor and self-denial. Requires toilsome labor and self-denial. Right? So faithful gospel ministers cannot fulfill their calling in their own strength. This is not something that we can do in our own power. Ministry is impossible to do in human strength. That's why Charles Bridges says that, in fact, no strength but the arm of omnipotence is sufficient for this work. Right? The power of God, the eternal, all-sufficient, all-powerful God is the only one who is able to supply the strength to engage in this spiritual battle. But here's the good news this morning. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to engage and to participate in gospel ministry. Right? We don't grow weary of doing good. We don't give up the good fight because God supplies the strength and the wisdom that we need. It's a good time just to stop and to ask you, church family, to pray for us, pastors of this church. Pray that we would engage in this true gospel ministry, not in our own strength, but in the strength that only God can provide. Pray that we as pastors of this church would prioritize godly character over public ministry. 
Pray that we as pastors of this church would fear God and follow after Him and that we would labor not in our strength, but in His strength. We can pray that all for each other as we all are engaged in gospel ministry. So we've seen again here the nature of Paul's ministry, but but what's the goal? What's the end goal of that labor? What's the end goal of the struggle? Well, there are two phrases here in verses uh, 2 and 3 that I want us to, to look at closely to answer that question. What's the goal? Why do we labor in this way? Two key phrases. The first is the phrase, knit together in love. Paul says he labors and struggles so the church would be knit together in love. And secondly, is full assurance of understanding and knowledge. Full assurance of understanding and knowledge. Those are the two goals that Paul is laboring towards in the context of this local church. It's two goals that we, as a local church, ought to labor for together. Now, the language here uh, in in the ESV that I read from, it's, it's really choppy and and confusing, and there's different ways that you can translate these words into English. And if you guys have different translations, I'm sure yours read differently. But here's the main point that Paul is making, right? His ultimate purpose for gospel ministry to these particular churches is that they would be united in love and so that they might know Jesus. That's what Paul's laboring for, for the churches, that they would be united together in love and that they would know Jesus. Look down again at verses 2 and 3. He says there in in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged or built up by being knit together in love. That first one, knit together in love. Now it might seem really strange that Paul here, he's, he's been talking about who Jesus is, he's been talking about what Jesus has done, he's been talking about the nature of gospel ministry and its suffering and labor and toil and all of these things, and he's identifying that suffering and labor with the suffering of Jesus. And, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about unity, church unity and love. And it might seem kind of strange, but in fact, this is really a central theme in the whole book of Colossians. It's the first time Paul mentions it here, but we'll see as we continue to work through the book in coming days that, that this is something that Paul brings up over and over and over again. So, for example, in chapter 2, verse 19, he says that the unity of the body comes from the body's head, who is Jesus. Right? So we're built up in unity together, being built up into the head of the church, who is Christ, who is Jesus. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, he says that over all these virtues were to put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So Paul's point here is not out of place, right? Paul's point here that he labors that the church might be unified in love is not out of place. Well, church family, our unity with one another is a mark. It's a sign, it's a symptom that the true gospel has taken root in our hearts. It's it's an outward sign of an inward change that has taken place. That the true gospel of Jesus Christ has taken root in our hearts and we have new hearts that loves God, that, that loves Christ, and that therefore we love one another. 
Our unity rooted in love is a mark that we as a church are growing into spiritually mature and complete folks. Right? Church, we don't gather here together every Sunday morning as God's people because we share the same interests. I I bet that if we were to all sit down around a table and each one of us were to talk about uh, what we like to do, what our interests are, each one of us probably have different interests in life. We don't gather together because we share a similar political affiliation. We don't even gather together because we share the same last name or because we have the same family tree. A lot of us do, but most of us don't. The longer I'm here, the more I'm learning that a lot of you do. Have this, I'm still learning how people fit together in this church almost 10 years later. But that's not the reason why we come together here on Sunday mornings. No, brothers and sisters, we come together as a church each Lord's Day to encourage one another and to affirm one another as we look at each other and observe different ways that we are growing spiritually. And we gather together to work together, to labor towards the end that each of us would grow in our relationship with Christ into spiritually mature people. That's why we come together. I think we need to be mindful, church family, that when new folks come into our church, as they are looking for that gospel-centered and gospel-saturated community, that they ought to come into this church and feel like it's a place that they belong. Because we're rooted in the same gospel. Folks need a place where they come to feel a part. They need a place where they come to feel appreciated, respected, and heard, and loved. But most of all, we need a place, all of us need a place, where we can come to be challenged by the truth of God's Word every single week and helped and prayed for to obey it. I think there's a warning for us here as well, church. Here's the warning. Don't take gospel unity for granted. Pray for it. Labor towards it. Right? Church unity is not something that you just achieve one day and then you move on to something different. It's not as if we attain this unity and then we can kick our feet back and just relax and coast the rest of the way. That's not the way it works. No, remember Remember, we are engaged in spiritual warfare together. We are engaged in spiritual battle together. And we need to constantly engage in that spiritual battle against our own flesh. Against our own flesh as we consider other people more important than ourselves. As we consider the needs of others before we consider our own needs. And to love one another in this way. So church, I think that we are in a season that we have experienced a season of great church unity. There's no major issue that's going on that's brought a dividing line between the church. Right? We have weathered the storm of this last year, I believe by God's grace very well. Right? But here's the thing. Don't take that unity for granted. Fight for it. Labor towards it. Don't take it for granted. 
moment we take it for granted, the moment we lose it. Secondly, notice here the second goal that Paul mentions, that he is laboring towards. The goal of his ministry here is that the church may reach a full understanding and knowledge of Christ. He works and he labors so that the church can reach the full understanding and knowledge of Christ. Here Paul's talking about the true gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus became a man just like you and me and took on himself a human nature and human flesh and he lived a perfect life that none of us, try as hard as we might, none of us could ever live. And he died on the cross in our place taking the punishment that you and me deserve right, for our sin. Jesus took that on the cross and he rose again from the grave defeating sin and defeating death. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise of the gospel for every single one of you here today. That if you turn away from your sin and you put your trust in Jesus and you believe in him and his life and death and resurrection, that you will be forgiven of your sin and that you can enjoy eternal life with him in heaven one day. The Bible tells you this morning that you can have full assurance that you are saved if you understand and if you know Jesus and if you trust in Him. You notice the words here in verse 2 and 3 that Paul uses to describe this good news. He uses a couple of key phrases. He calls it the riches of full assurance. That these gospel promises that we are to know and understand are the, the riches of full assurance. That they're God's mystery which, was, which has been made known to us he calls them the treasure of wisdom and knowledge. All of these things are ours in Christ. If we believe and trust in Him. So friends, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, you, you wouldn't consider yourself to be a believer in Jesus, you've never turned from your sin and placed your faith in Him, I want to ask you this morning, why would you pass up this good news? Why, why would you consider some other way to deal with your sin other than Jesus? Why would you pass it up? Why would you reject this good news? Why would you look for answers elsewhere? Douglas Moo, who's a commentator, says about this verse, he says, Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that we need in order to understand spiritual realities and to live lives that are pleasing to God. Friend, if you have a sense of spiritual need this morning, if you're here today looking for answers to, the life, to your life's biggest questions, let me tell you today that the answer to whatever that need is, is Jesus. So turn to Him and trust in Him today. Lastly here, church family, this is the gospel that we're to labor for. This is what we are to do. All of our energy, all of our resources are to be poured into preaching and teaching and applying this gospel to our lives and to the lives of those who are around us. Now there are a lot of things that we can be about as a church. There are a lot of things that we could do to occupy our time together. 
There are a lot of things that we could keep ourselves busy doing. But none of those things have any worth. They have no worth. They have no lasting value if they are not rooted in this mission to labor for the true gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our mission. This is the goal that we are laboring and struggling towards to preach and to teach this gospel for as long as the Lord has us, has us here. So church, let's be about that work. Let's be busy doing that work while the Lord tarries. So <clears throat> verses 1 through 3 here describes what Paul labors for in ministry. Right? He labors with all of his might towards building up the church in unity and knowledge of Christ. Next, here in these next two verses, Paul turns to talk about what he labors against in ministry. So he labors for unity and knowledge. He labors against something here in verse 4. That brings us to point 2. Faithful gospel ministers labor against false gospels. Faithful gospel ministers labor against false gospels. All right, verse 4 here seems to be a really abrupt turn in Paul's flow of thought, right? But in fact, Paul here uh, it tells us why he has taken so much time to talk about and to write about and to teach on the true gospel of Jesus. I mean, if you, if you look at the broader context of Colossians and what Paul has said uh, from the beginning of the letter to where we are now, from, from chapter 1, verse 15, all the way down through chapter 2, verse 4, right? Paul has given us a treasure trove, a high teaching, deep teaching about Jesus, about who Jesus is and about what Jesus came to do for us. And now Paul says, all of this, I say all of this, there in verse 4. In other words, I've spent so much time writing to you about who Jesus really is and what Jesus really came to do so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul here says that he is laboring hard against this false gospel, this false teaching that has come up, that has sprouted up within the Colossian church. Now, we don't have a ton of time this morning to talk about what that false gospel was, but as we make our way through the book, we are going to look at the details of what these false teachers were saying and what they were preaching and, and how people were being deceived, what exactly it was that they were doing and saying. But here, for the first time in this letter, he shows his purpose, one of his main purposes for writing this letter in general, was to guard the Colossian believers so that they might not be taken captive by this false gospel that was beginning to, to spread around. Now I want you to notice one thing, one thing about this false teaching. And really, this one thing applies to all false gospels that creep into the church, no matter when and where the church exists. Notice there in, in verse 4, Paul describes this false gospel as a plausible argument. A plausible argument. Now, I looked up in the Oxford English Dictionary what, what this word plausible means. And here's what the Oxford English Dictionary, how it defines this word plausible. It says that, Something that's plausible is an argument or a statement that seems reasonable 
or probable. Or a person who is skilled at producing persuasive arguments, especially ones intended to deceive. Isn't that interesting that, that, that the Oxford English Dictionary says that a, a plausible argument, something that's plausible, is something that seems reasonable or probable, or it's a person who is skilled at producing this persuasive argument, especially intending to deceive people. Well, brothers and sisters, sometimes it's really easy for us as Christians to sniff out false teaching. Sometimes this isn't really hard to identify false gospel. <clears throat> I remember as, as a middle schooler in 1997 watching the news with my parents one night and hearing for the first time about the Heaven's Gate cult. You guys remember these people? Some of you guys are too young to remember this. Uh, but the Heaven's Gate cult. The Heaven's Gate community was made up of 39 men and women kind of ironically, from a really rich area in California, right? And, and this cult was led by a college professor named Marshall Applewhite. And Marshall Applewhite began teaching that these earthly physical bodies that we have, they're nothing but a shell, right? That, that there's no real substance, that there's, it's not really who we are, it's not, not really who we exist as human beings uh, in these body uh, bodies that we have. These things are nothing but shells. And so in 1995, he began teaching his cult members, which he, he called his Christian angels, that there was an extraterrestrial spaceship that was following the tail of the Hellbach Comet. And, and, and as the Hellbach Comet's orbit would come as close to Earth as it had come in nearly 4,000 years or so, and, and the Heaven's Gate cult members uh, right as, as it approached in, in this alien spaceship uh, rode behind that comet, uh, Applewhite rented a home in Rancho Santa Fe, California in late March of 1997, and he taught his people right, that, that this alien spaceship riding behind this comet was their ticket. It was their ride through heaven's gates on into eternity in their higher existence. So he rented this house, and gathered all of his occult members together, all 39 of them. And on that night, as Halley's Comet, or that Hellbop Comet, passed through the Earth's atmosphere, uh, they all drink this deadly poison together in order to shed these shells of earthly bodies to be able to be united and catch a ride on this alien spaceship uh, to go on through Heaven's Gate into eternity. And I remember, as an eighth grader, Eighth grade boy, listening to this teaching and thinking, how could you be so dumb? How in the world could a grown person, a grown person who has enough sense to have a good job and a lot of wealth, buy into such an outlandish and just quite frankly a dumb teaching? I mean, how could you buy into that? Well, how in the world could somebody buy into such a false teaching? I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. But here's what I do know. Here's the thing about false teachings and false gospels. They aren't always that easy to identify. False gospels are not always that easy to point out. 
And I can stand here this morning and talk about how silly it would be for somebody to believe in an alien spaceship coming to take them to heaven. But brothers and sisters, we can be just as deceived. Just as easily deceived. Paul describes these false teachings of the Colossians as plausible. In other words, these arguments that these false teachers were making, they sounded reasonable. They made sense. And Paul is concerned for these believers that they are going to be deluded, that they're going to be convinced, that they are going to be conned into believing something that isn't true. But here's the thing about false gospels. The dangerous thing about false teaching is that they contain just enough truth to be convincing and just enough falsehood to be deadly. The dangerous thing about false teachings is they contain just enough truth to be convincing and just enough falsehood to be deadly. So how do we identify a false gospel? How do we identify a false teacher? There's way too many false gospels and false teachers out there uh, for me to stand here and talk about all day long. But let me give you some principles. I want to give you five basic principles that I see from the Scripture about how we can identify false gospels and false teachers. In Romans chapter 16, verse 18, there's two things from that verse. First, we see that false teachers serve their own appetite. Right? They are in it for themselves. So when you hear that TV preacher who is asking you to send in a financial seed so that he can buy a private jet, buzzers ought to be going off in your ears. This is a false teacher. False teachers serve their own appetites. They are in it for themselves. The other thing that Paul says in Romans 16 is that false teachers, he describes them as smooth talkers and flatterers. Their language is marked by smooth talk and flattery. Now, that's not saying that Good gospel preachers are all bad speakers. That's not what he's saying, right? John Calvin said of this verse, he said that preachers of the gospel, they also have their courtesy and their pleasing manner, but it's joined with honesty so that neither they soothe men with vain praises nor do they flatter their vices. But impostors will allure men by flattery and spare and indulge their vices so that they may keep them attracted to themselves. You see, false teachers will teach false gospels with smooth words and flattery, coddling people's sin so that they will like them, so that they would be attracted to and joined to them, not being attracted to and joined to Jesus. False teachers, number three, false teachers deny either the deity or the humanity of Jesus. They will deny either the deity or the humanity of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is truly and fully God and truly and fully man. And both of those things matter. And they matter a lot. Because if you lose either one of those things, Jesus is not the perfect sacrifice in our sin, and we're all still doomed for hell. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and false teachers will deny or lessen either one of those truths. 
Fourthly, false teachers make up promises that the Scriptures don't make. False teachers will... False teachers and false gospels will make promises that the scriptures just simply don't make. That's the problem with the prosperity gospel that's so popular today. Right? It makes promises that the scripture doesn't make. Scripture says nothing about you living your best life now. Scripture promises that your best life comes in the next life, in heaven. So false gospels and false teachers will make promises that the scriptures don't make. And then lastly, finally, number five, false gospels require you to earn your forgiveness and salvation by your own merit instead of Christ's merit. Right? So do this. Or stay away from that. Right? That you have to clean yourself up before you can come to Christ. Those are false gospels. And they are very, very common in the church today. Don't listen to any gospel or to any preacher of a gospel that would require you to earn anything from Jesus. It's all accomplished by His work apart from us. One last piece of application here. Church, the best way for us to guard ourselves against false gospels is simply to know the true gospel. Right? Proportionally here in this passage, Paul spends way more time in this letter laying out the truth of the gospel rather than expounding upon the error of the false teachers. right? And I think that there's a lesson here in that in itself. That if we're to guard our hearts against the plausible arguments that may come to us from the world, we must know the Bible's truth inside and out. So church family, if we're going to be a church that stands firm in this true gospel of Jesus Christ, we must labor with all our might to know that truth and to then live it out. So that's the call this morning for us. That's the word from the Holy Spirit for us today, to stand firm in a true knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Church, I don't know about you, but I like to know the ends of stories. I can't read a book, I can't read a story halfway through and put it down and, and not know how it resolves. That, that, that's just not something that I can do. And so when I, when I read these passages about, uh, when I read this letter to the Colossian church uh, from the Apostle Paul, the, the questions that immediately come to my mind are, did they listen? Did they listen to what Paul said? Did it all work out in the end for them? And the truth of the matter is, is we don't fully know. We don't fully know about the Colossian church, but we do have a few more words in Scripture to the church, or about the church, that Paul writes this letter to that are near Colossae. Right? Paul wrote this not only to the church in the Colossians, but also to the church of the Laodiceans. So turn with me now to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Some of you guys who went to Sunday school this morning studied this passage in your Sunday school lesson. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. John, the Apostle John, wrote this letter of Revelation during the lifetime of the members who would have received this letter from the Colossians. This is the same people, the same generation within the church. 
And listen what the Apostle John said to them later on in their life. Verse 14, he says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. There he's talking about the true gospel, right? Listen to the true gospel that I have preached to you. Buy this refined gold uh, from me so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Friends, there's a warning for us here this morning in knowing the end of the story for the Laodicean church. You might hear these words of Paul today from Colossians and you might think, Nick, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? You know, we should just kind of keep on keeping on. Everything's fine. Everything's running smooth. No need to worry about things like doctrine and truth and those kinds of things. These are just things that people divide over anyway. We just need to love God and love people and leave everything else alone and we'll be all right. Well, friends, let this end of the Laodicean church be a warning to you that there is equal danger in apathy. Repent. Stand firm. Labor and love for unity, for true knowledge and understanding of Jesus. And church, let's guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word this morning. We thank you for uh, the way that your word exposes our hearts, exposes our inclinations, gives us warnings and encouragement, all the different things that your word does. And so I pray this morning now that as we conclude our service together as we uh, as we respond to your word that you would help us to respond uh, to whatever it is that your spirit is prompting within our hearts we pray these things in jesus's name amen we're going to move into a time of uh <clears throat> of response now and i want to invite you if you're here this morning and you're not a christian and and you haven't placed your faith in that gospel that we talked about that true gospel of jesus's life death and resurrection for you for your forgiveness of sin and repentance and faith, I want to invite you this morning to respond to that good news. Again, that's the only true gospel that's going to that's gonna do you any spiritual good. And so I invite you this morning to respond. If, if you have questions about that, Pastor Richard will be down front. You can ask your Christian neighbor that's sitting next to you in the pews. We would love nothing more than to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian and how you can follow Jesus and have forgiveness of your sins in the hope of eternal life with Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning, church family, and you know, the, uh, the conviction of the word is about unity and love or about knowledge or 
about fighting against false gospels, and you may just take a moment there to pray uh, where you're at, to, to sing this song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, that talks about how Jesus is the only way right, that we can find true forgiveness for our sins. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a part of a church family, and, and the idea of being knit together in a community of love for the pr- purpose of knowledge and understanding and those kinds of things are you know, that's an attractive thing to you and you want to know more about what it means to be a member of a church, maybe a member of this church particularly. We'll be down front. However it is that the Spirit's calling you to respond today, I want to invite you to stand with me as we sing together and to respond to God's Word. Let's stand together and sing.